are for trips that are less than 12 miles. These devices include electric bikes, scooters, and delivery robots. This is the Levers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Prachi Vakaria, an entrepreneur and mentor to many companies in the transportation and mobility sector. Over the course of this interview, you will hear her stories regarding how that last mile is getting disrupted by technology, how innovation differs from the MIT Media Lab to AES, a major utility, and how to close the gap between educating women to nurturing female leaders. Now let's hear how Prachi applies different models of innovation to different organizations of different scales. Well, Prachi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jimmy. It's a pleasure to speak to you and speak to your audience. I'd like to open with a quote from the Greek philosopher Theophrastus, which said that time is the most valuable thing a man can spend. And when I look at your work, your breadth of activity is wide and really impressive. So I wanted to start by asking, how do you invest your time? That's a great question. I think I invest my time in two ways. First is, of course, what motivates me and what drives me, right? And that comes from my early days when I worked with the team from MIT in the Media Lab, where I was working on using AI and machine learning to make city systems smarter. And the amount of innovation that I saw at the Media Lab at that time was really amazing. And that's propelled me throughout my career to keep finding new and innovative technologies that I can work on to contribute and really to bring new technologies to even more traditional projects that I may be working on. So truly my time spent on any of the work that I do, you know, with AES in the past or with some of the companies and startups I've mentored, with all of them, my focus is on innovation and all of that really energizes me. It gets me really motivated to wake up in the morning and do fun and interesting and exciting things and hopefully see some change in the world as a result. So I like to spend my time having fun. And uh, this way, for me, is the most fun. And the more things I can contribute to and do well, the more fun and uh, yeah, the more excited I am. Describe to me how you felt innovation was like in the MIT Media Lab and whether you think that the innovation you feel inside that building is comparable in other places that you've been. Yeah, that's a great question. So MIT Media Lab is a very unique place which came about actually during the Space Race of America in the 70s when the Media Lab was created. And it was to really bring people from different backgrounds, educational backgrounds, different capabilities together in one place and see what creativity comes from there. Uh, so the Media Lab has you know, everything from architects. There are actually quite a few famous architects there, uh, as well as, of course, computer science people, so the CSRL Lab. Uh, and then, of course, you know, engineers from different fields of MIT as well. And it's really this place where people come together. So even my team, you know, we were a mix of engineers, but some of them did have architecture backgrounds. For me, I came from a mathematics background. And for all of us, you know, we were looking at big problems and seeing how can we make a change here. And if you think of the Media Lab, Google Glasses, for example, comes from the Media Lab. MIT Media Lab in the 90s had something which was very similar to Google Glasses and you know Google Glasses was based on that. And even if you see today, we don't have something like a Google Glass that's in the consumer space and then slowly penetrating the industrial space, right? So my point there being that we see technologies that are way ahead of their times, sometimes too ahead of their times that they're not commercialized that very instant. The other example is some of my team members at the Media Lab project they were working on was reconceptualizing the car. If you think of the modern passenger vehicle, you know, everything from the steering, the brakes, how the car is shaped, all of that was really created in the 50s. And since then, we've had incremental changes, but really nothing too dramatic. Some of my team members at MIT put together everything that happens inside the car, inside a wheel itself. So everything from the engine, the motor, etc., all of that was compressed into the wheel. And the wheel was able to power the car to the rest of the body and able to direct it. And it is a truly marvelous technology. And today I'm seeing companies like RE, REE in Israel that are trying to do the same thing and just raise millions of dollars. But again, this is 10 to 15 years after we already did this at MIT in the Media Lab. So the freedom of creativity there is amazing. The amount of funding we had was really great. And the big picture ideas we were trying to solve were fantastic as well. And that's something that's truly inspirational of, of MIT in the Media Lab. 
What do you think was the secret sauce that made the media lab work, and how did that influence your worldview in your decision making when you're looking at a new innovation at a new company? That's true. You know, Media Lab was trying to solve very big problems. And what we have today with startups, right, they take a, a piece of the problem and are trying to solve it. And it's true for investors as well. It's rare to find investors who are patient investors who are investing in the long term. If you think of Breakthrough Energies, Energy Ventures, which is in the energy field, they're one of the few energy funds that's focused on, again, this long-term gain, right, who are patient for an energy technology, which typically does take a long time to mature. Uh, they're patient for a 15, 20-year timeline. And it's very rare to find investors like these today. So I don't think the MIT model can be replicated for venture funds and startups today, just because how the venture community is shaped today. Most funds are have a lifespan of 10 years. They're looking to invest in the early years of that. So, you know, within the first three years, they're looking to invest, make all the investments of the fund. And they're looking for returns within those 10 years as well. So it's hard to really solve these big problems unless you have patient investors. And the patience is really to be able to diagnose the problem, dive deeply into it, look at the global state of technologies. I mean, there's lots of different aspects to be patient about, right? Right, right. Absolutely. There are a lot of different aspects to be patient about. I think the incremental changes, uh, Silicon Valley is really fantastic at that to be able to figure out and diagnose problems, uh, come up with solutions very quickly, iterate and fail fast. And truly, even when I compare startups coming from Berlin, coming from other parts of the world, coming from India, Silicon Valley is even today unbeatable. But then again, Silicon Valley fails when it comes to solving problems like COVID, right? What are the innovations have we seen beyond a few mask companies here and there? So I think that also tells you what's the drawback of being so isolated from other parts of the world and other parts of the larger industries. In some ways, maybe Silicon Valley has to take a well-defined problem, but once right. that problem was well-defined, it can iterate incredibly quickly to come Absolutely. up with the best solution. Absolutely. In fact, there's a Silicon Valley company I'm mentoring today, and they found a very good, very niche area to work on. So, Jimmy, I'm sure you're well aware of automation in the passenger vehicle sites. So companies like Waymo and Ford, Argo, etc., they're all working to make autonomous cars and bring them to our roads. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So the company that I'm mentoring is they've said, well, you know, passenger vehicles, this technology is still developing. And the problem with this technology is to get it to fruition, right? Like, why don't we see autonomous cars today? It's because it's a very complex problem to solve. And also because of the uh, operational design domain that most urban places have. So what that means is the environment is truly so noisy. It's really tough to make instant decisions without having the vehicle just drive at, you know, 10 or 15 miles an hour and go at really, really low speeds. So what I mean by that is, you know, imagine an autonomous vehicle. It has to watch out for pedestrians that might jump onto the road at any time, for bicyclists, which again, it's a tough problem to solve, you know, for driving in nighttime or rain conditions. We know this is also quite a tough problem to solve. And that's why if you think of most autonomous vehicles, when they do road testing, it's in sunny California, it's in sunny and dry Arizona, because these are much better conditions. So the company I'm advising right now, they've said, well, you know, autonomy is hard to bring in this sector, but what's a sector that's right for autonomy? which is mining and construction. So if you think of these huge trucks that exist at mining sites and similarly at construction sites as well, the environment they work in is very simple. They're doing more or less the same tasks. You know, if you think of a dump truck, it's a big truck carrying maybe 200 to 400 tons of a payload and it's going back and forth carrying materials. Well, this is something that's easy to automate and there's value we can create in automating it as well. And what I mean by that is think of a mining company. They're already paying a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars for these trucks. Well, when you automate it, what you do is you increase the utilization rate of these trucks. Right now, you have on average 3.5 people that are needed to drive this truck. And imagine automating it. You don't have any downtimes. You don't have people going on lunch breaks. You don't have speed variations. What you have is this consistent utilization, which in turn translates into profits very quickly and very simply. What you can also do is, of course, increase the safety on such mines. And there are a number of other use cases as well, right? So one kind of overlooked one is 
Well, you could increase the tire performance. Again, tires for these trucks are really expensive. And when you automate the truck, what you're able to do is also regulate the speed of the vehicle. If the tires are getting too hot, for example, the vehicle can slow down or take a lower payload so that the tires are not wearing out as quickly. And again, you make sure that your tires live for longer. So there are all these incremental benefits, which actually add up pretty quickly for a mine that's already spending thousands of dollars every day for operating these equipment. And that adds up to millions very quickly. I know there's lots of different niche sectors within transportation that have already started going down this automated path. Agriculture and tractors happened several years ago. You're talking about mining heavy-duty equipment. And I hear autonomous trucking, long-haul trucking, is next in line to be disrupted by automation, Uh, essentially. Right. Absolutely. No, you're quite right. So mining and construction, if you think of Caterpillar and Komatsu, they've been working on autonomous equipment for at least 15 to 20 years. So really some of the early pioneers in the space. What we have today is really advanced AI and machine learning from where they started, and as well as so many improvements in the hardware side. So think of LiDAR companies, camera companies. Camera companies are in the thousands today. And really, you can pick for the specifications that you want. So we didn't have this kind of low-cost hardware supply before that we have today. Tracking, of course, is a great example. And certainly, I think this is a strong use case as well, especially if you look at trackers, the, the limitations on time and the number of hours they're allowed to work. Also, the infrastructure that's needed to support trackers and this life on the road, I think, is a bit of an overlooked thing where you, you actually have like little towns next to these truck depots, right, where the truck drivers can sleep, where they can rest, even get dental services because they are not allowed to, you know, you get that truck into a city road. So you have all of these ecosystems set up, right, and that comes with the cost. So I think the automation part is certainly makes a lot of sense for trucks. I think there are some problems still that remain to be solved, which is that last mile, not truck driving into a warehouse. And a lot of warehouses today are not designed for automation. Um, So for these trucks being, or or maybe I should say the, the autonomous vehicles are not able to maneuver themselves for these small warehouse roads where they have to take very sharp turns. So this is where I think closing that last mile gap, is going to be a bit of a challenge. But again, we are seeing innovation there. So I don't think it's going to be a challenge for too long. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting you mentioned that last mile. There's this notion of micro-mobility, which is to help right. people get around on sidewalks. We think of the Segway. We think of some of the other uh, you know, hoverboards these days, looking at it from a micro-mobility point of view. And then we have the macro-mobility, if we could call it that, these long-haul trucking, these niche applications of large grant applications. What do you see are the trends of the two of them? And do you think those two trends are converging? Ah, great question. <laughs> Let me start with the micromobility. So it's interesting you asked this, Jimmy, because about three years ago, I was asked by SAE, the Society for Automotive Engineers, to start a whole new committee on micromobility and shared mobility devices. So just a bit of background on SAE. SAE started about 100 years ago by Henry Ford, and it was a way to get all the automakers together and to build standards for the automotive industry. At the time, there was a lot of pressure to enforce regulations on the automotive industry, and the automotive industry said, hey, hey, wait, hold up. You know, we are going to self-regulate so that you don't put and impose your regulations on us. So it's about 100 years old, but in those 100 years, they've really focused on passenger vehicles. They have some focus on the aerospace industry. But as Uber and Lyft came about, you know, this, these were true disruptors, especially where we see in these digital technology spaces, right? They're not creating something like a vehicle, but they're changing how we use that vehicle. Similarly, micromobility solutions emerged in the last few years. So SAE approached me three years ago to create a whole new committee to build standards for all these new mobility options that we have. So the committee is called the Shared and Digital Mobility Committee. And the focus, like you mentioned, is, well, can we create best practices for shared mobility? Can we create data sharing standards? Can we even create a joint battery standard for micromobility devices so that batteries can be interchanged between the two? So coming from this committee, I've seen the way micromobility companies are thinking and where they forecast growth as well. And COVID, in a way, has been a huge disruptor for them. Of course, you know, they've had to shut down operations But the ones who survived, I think, are going to see a huge uptick in mobility, especially because you still have, you know, there were over 200 million trips taken on micromobility devices on 2019. And I think 2021, 2022, we are going to see that number, maybe even bigger. 
And the reason I'm saying that is because these devices are going to take away trips from public transport. And there's a lot of fear right now. In fact, if you look at various different surveys, people are very skeptical of taking public transport, especially buses or underground trains, because they fear the COVID transmission would be higher there. So what they're doing instead is, well, I can go ahead and buy a car. And if you've seen some of the trends, right, the, the automotive industry, especially for the used car sales, it's, it's not seen an impact at all in terms of sales. Uh, so people are going to create that two-meter bubble by buying a car, or they're going to go, and especially in urban areas, use these micro-mobility devices, which, again, gives them an option that's free from other human beings. They're not sharing it. They're able to wipe it down, and they're really able to control the space around them, very similar to how a car would offer, but obviously at, at much lower speeds and for smaller areas. So certainly, I think micromobility for the companies that have survived will see growth again in the next few months and years to come. You know, as these micromobility technologies come out, and as you say, creating standards, creating regulations, you know, mm-hmm. regulations are incredibly long term. And I think most people don't think of regulations as being very innovative, and they treat regulations as a blocker. But how do we innovate in that regulation space for that 10-year, 20-year, 30-year period? That's that's a really good question. And I'm going to say that's really hard. So there's a lot of push right now to focus on regulations and to be able to very quickly regulate new industries. So what I mean by that is just, again, pre-COVID times, not a lot of cities had any kind of regulations for automated delivery vehicles. Think of like little robots going around your streets, delivering food to your door. Not too many jurisdictions had that. Of course, COVID changed all of that where contactless delivery became really important. So I'm in Washington, D.C., and I saw that the D.C. Department of Transport had some regulations focused on this technology. Maybe two, three years ago, they had already developed the regulations because they saw companies offering it. But with COVID hitting, smaller counties around the D.C. area started asking the D.C. government, saying, you know, D.C. Department of Transport, saying, hey, can we look at your regulations? Because we need something for our jurisdiction. We really don't have the capacity to figure it out for ourselves. So, well, can we just cut and copy paste your regulations and use it for us? And that's truly how regulations are getting made on the fly today. Regulation has to keep up with the pace of innovation. And certainly regulators are struggling right now. I sit on the board of this organization called IATR, which is the International Association of Transport Regulators. So it's a New York-based organization. And one of the goals of this organization, too, is help regulators figure out how do you regulate a new and emerging mobility that's coming too fast for them to even understand and wrap their heads around. Most regulators sitting at state DOTs or city DOTs don't even know these technologies well enough to know how to regulate them. So, yeah, certainly I think it's going to be a challenge and a lot of regulator education is going to be needed. I think we're seeing that in many different spaces. You're seeing the drone technologies coming in, taking up airspace. You're seeing these micro-mobility devices taking up sidewalks, and some of them are competing with the roadways and cars and bicycles are taking over car lanes. There seems to be quite an interesting re-evaluation of how we split up our public space these days. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the right of way, right? It's certainly there. It's going to be the next place where we'll see these wars play out. And rightfully so. When I first started my career, so after working at the team from MIT, I joined this organization called the World Bank. The World Bank is headquartered in Washington, D.C., and it's a large infrastructure development bank. My focus was looking and developing BRT, so bus rapid transit systems, in cities such as Istanbul, in Mexico City, etc. And what BRT does is buses get their own dedicated lanes, preferential signaling, and a few other changes. And that's called a, a BRT system. So what it does, it's able to carry a lot of people at pretty high speeds. And because of dedicated lanes, you don't have these interruptions, you don't have the vehicle slowing down, you don't have a bus getting caught up in traffic. So truly, it's like having a light rail system or a heavy rail system, but instead using buses, which are way cheaper for any city to obtain. And it's a system, you know, the BRT system, it's much easier to design. Putting in these bus lanes, I know in America has been quite a fight for cities around the country here. Even in DC, we have a few lanes now uh, that are emerging that are dedicated for buses, but it's been a, really a tough battle to fight here, you know, to convince car makers that, uh, well, now instead of three lanes, you'll only have two and one goes to the, the bus. And I think we are going to see more and more of these fights come up in urban areas, especially as we're seeing an increase in the number of bikers. Again, because of COVID, we've seen a huge spike in bike sales and anticipate that the number of people biking is going to only go up. 
with COVID, we've also seen that people are taking back their streets, right? So uh, major streets are getting shut down. And instead, they're getting turned into open space, rest, like, you know, outdoor open restaurants. You know, that's another <laughs> competing, competing factor here. And of course, I don't think a, a micromobility device, an e-bike, which goes a little bit faster, a truck, a delivery van, and a car, I don't think all of these vehicles should be on the same lane together. Creates for a lot of safety issues. And certainly, I think dedicating spaces for all of this becomes more and more important. And of course, I think the one we forgot are these delivery vehicles, which as online shopping and food delivery becomes more and more important, they will be fighting not only for the road space, but also the curb space, which is another area of up for grabs. That's right. Yeah. Just the curbs itself, there's quite a number of stakeholders competing for that space, not only for you know storage of delivery goods, but also charging stations. And where do you plug in? Those have to be physically tied into the right. sidewalk. Right. Absolutely. So we've talked about many different ideas, different thoughts. In terms of the risks that these future mobility technologies face, are they mostly technology risks? Are we talking policy risks? Are we talking about business risks? What would you say is the biggest share of risks these days? That's a really good question. And I would say none of the others. I would say the biggest risks some of these companies are facing today are financing risks. And what I mean by that is even before COVID, some of the micromobility companies were closing operations. To each trip make enough of a return to pay for itself, their business models make sense and have unit economic sense. But now they're also thinking in terms of operations. Do these operations make sense? Am I going to keep spending investor money to keep expanding and growing? Or do I want to make sure that I'm sustainable and you know, don't need so much more money for, for funding, but instead can maintain current operations and grow in existing markets? So a few companies did pull out of new markets that they were looking to enter into and stayed with the, the bigger markets they were in. So that readjustment was happening already before COVID. And of course, post-COVID, I think investment is a bit unpredictable. So I won't say it's going up or down, but certainly unpredictable. We are going to see more movement and certainly more consolidation happening, right? So companies are going to be merging together or being bought by other companies with Uber and Jump and them separating. So these movements we will keep seeing. And I think this is the biggest threat to the industry at the moment. Also going through the various different types of organizations you've been, whether they're startups, advising governments, working at large businesses, how do you see them handle the risks of innovation differently? Really great question. Maybe I will answer it in two ways. Uh, one is an anecdote from a friend who worked at NHTSA, which is the National Highway Transport Safety Administration. And what NHTSA does is make sure that our vehicles are safe to be on public roads. And uh, there was a lot of frustration for this person to be working in the current federal administration because of current federal administration, their attitude is regulations are bad, so we're not going to make any regulations. And the frustration this person felt is, well, I'm representing the U.S. in international organizations which are making standards, and these standards help the entire industry. It helps us work together. I'll give you some examples. You know, if we have the same standard for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication, it makes sure all the vehicles can speak to each other. And again, you need a common standard for that to happen. So for the industry, even for competing companies, there are certainly a lot of ways they can benefit by having common regulations because it sets a level playing field and allows them to work together, which allows for other kinds of innovation. So this person was very frustrated with the blanket statement that all regulations are bad and not being able to form and create and sign on to international agreements that will impact U.S. automakers here, who all of them wanted these regulations in the first place. So I think, you know, one cannot say that regulations are bad, regulations are good. It really depends on the case. And really, you have to decide by the industry, by what the topic area is, and by your, what your vision is as well. So that's one little anecdote, right, where, where regulations, I think, really are hurting the U.S. automakers. So the lack of regulations are hurting. I think the other question you ask is, how do businesses and others make sure that they are staying up with the pace of innovation? I will give you the example of AES, where I was at till recently. So AES is a Fortune 500 energy firm. They're headquartered right outside of Washington, D.C. in Arlington. But they have a global footprint. Uh, they're in countries around the world and have about 10,000 employees. And for AES, when they look at innovation in the energy field, be it battery technologies, be it you know how do you have better customer engagement tools, et cetera, 
they try to build innovation in-house. So what that means is it's, it's actually a five-step process. Maybe I can walk you through that a bit. I think it's a very unique model. So I, it's worth sharing where you know, AES will first decide. So there's a committee within AES that will first decide, does this idea that we're looking to invest in, that's disrupting our industry that perhaps we should invest in, does this idea make business sense, legal sense, technical sense? Is it possible? So, you know, the first check mark is the fundamental viability of a business. The second is, well, let's invest in it. Let's have something grow and incubate from within AES and get it to a stage where the unit economics makes sense. So we're going to nurture it, give it some money, and then again, make sure the unit economics makes sense. If that box is checked, then again, AES will help commercialize it. So make sure that the business economics makes sense, help it grow and expand. And then from there, AES typically spins off the company to let it scale and leverage, et cetera. So two examples are a company called Uplight, which focuses on bringing utilities closer to their end customers. And that's by giving them insights, that's by selling them energy efficient products and a number of other ways where the consumer engagement is really key. Another company is called Fluence, where again, it comes from within AES and it's a bit battery storage company. And AES supported it up to the point that Siemens has then invested in the company and today they're both joint partners and Fluence is doing business uh, globally. So from those two examples, I think the AS model is very different. It's not like a typical corporate venture fund where the corporation says, yeah, we have here a billion dollars and let's go buy up some startups in Silicon Valley and let's see what sticks. I think that that model, and especially I work with some of the German automakers, and I don't think that model makes the most amount of sense. I think a, a balance between the two is required where there are some strategic investments some purely financial investments, but not all the investments done towards looking at the long term. And suddenly, I think a company should have some stake in the development of these technologies as well, because that allows them to see where innovation is growing, how to grow it, and then how do you bring it back into the company as well, which, you know, if you've seen most startups getting acquired today, they get shut down after a few years. And that tells you that the cultures of the two organizations are really incompatible. So bringing them closer and having joint development, I think, adds much more value back to the parent company as well as to the startup. I'd like to ask you to compare the couple of different styles of innovation that we've been talking about so far today. We just went through a process, an innovation process at AES, where there's five different steps that the company looks at and there's check marks and metrics, all the way to the wide open-ended creativity that you found at the MIT Media Lab. What do you think are the advantages of the two different systems and how would you compare and contrast them? I think the Media Lab is a very different beast, Jimmy. So I think the, the Media Lab itself, right, you have... Uh, these corporations giving money to Media Lab, but then still quite some autonomy to develop technologies as they see fit, and maybe even learning from the use cases or problems that the companies and the donors bring in. On the other hand, corporations today are facing really unique challenges in being able to position themselves as innovative companies, but then really struggling to do so. Give you an example, which I don't think they'll like, but you know, Daimler CEO came out last year at CES, so Daimler, the big automaker, Owns Mercedes Benz. They came out at CS last year and CEO on stage pronounced, you know, Daimler, we are no longer a car maker. We are a software company. And he said it so proudly and arrogantly. And I thought, hmm, this person does not know about software. And <laughs> when you look at, at Daimler's investments as well, you know, they've really floundered their way around. In fact, three of the startups that I mentioned, all three got acquired by Daimler. And uh, today, none of them are in existence, even though they had very good. So one of the examples is Cardigo, which had very good unit economics, very good business economics, but Daimler still decided to shut this company down. So that tells you that uh, these corporations are really struggling with making a commitment to innovation and sticking by it. I remember when Cardigo and BMW were competing heavily on the streets of Seattle, and today neither of them exist. Exactly. They decided to merge together, okay, but then very quickly they decided to shut down. Cardigo was functioning very, very well until Daimler changed how they sell and provide cars to Cardigo. And that changed, again, the unit economics for Cardigo, which, again, then broke the business economics as well. To your point, Jimmy, I think 
a lot of companies are really struggling with innovation. How do you support it? And then how do you make sure it sustains and lasts and it's not something they shut down in a few years? You've taken a very circuitous path to where you are today. Where do you think your path was inspired and who are your mentors? <laughs> ah, that's a great question. My path was inspired, I think. Uh, I have some close friends who really shaped me from early on. But I see amazing men and women you know, leading organizations like ARPA, DARPA, working at the cutting edge of innovation. I think that really inspires me to always work at the intersection of innovation, finance, and people. And that's where my sweet spot is. And I see you're also taking that and bringing along other young leaders as well. We look at what you're doing with Womenium and bringing young female leaders into the market as well. Can you speak a little bit about what inspired you to start Womenium and what it does? Yes, great question, Jamie. So Womenium, we started about three years ago. So Womenium, like the name suggests women, and EM, like plutonium, titanium, you know, the elemental woman. So that's how we came up with the name. And it was started in 2017 by a few of us from MIT, where you know, we asked the question, well, we love science. How do we get more people excited about science? So that's where we started. Now, we wanted to spread the curiosity of science to everyone else. But from there, we asked a few other fundamental questions. And this is actually the questions that organizations like DARPA asked when they created DARPA. And even today, when they have different programs underneath DARPA, two fundamental questions they ask is, A, has it been done before? B, can it be done? So if yes, can it be done? And that's what we started at Womenium as well. We asked the question, well, how do you get more people excited about science? We came up with a number of ways. We did a lot of studies. We looked at National Academy reports to understand, you know, when exactly, how do we shape our programs? When exactly can we make the most most impact? At what age do people decide to go into science or not, et cetera? So we asked all these questions. And then we asked, well, has it been done before? And I think that really helped shape Womenium because we saw that there were a lot of organizations already doing and having amazing programs for women actually children as well as especially targeted towards women to get them interested in computer science, to get them interested in science at an early age. So then we asked the question, well, what is it something that we at Womenium can do? And that's where all of our relationships, again, with um, the Palo Alto Research Center, Xerox Park, which has been at the cutting edge of innovation for decades, we looked at uh, and we decided to work with ARPA, DARPA, again, Department of Energy, NASA. We said, you know, these organizations are amazing. They do really cutting edge work. And when you look at the cutting edge, you see this huge gender parity versus when you look today at university, right? More, In fact, more women are graduating from college than men are. But where these gaps really increase is at the tail end, where if you look at most of our corporate leaders, if you look at most of our scientific leaders, there are still men. We said, well, can we close this gap right here between the men and the women? Because I had looked at women like Aarti Prabhakar, who at the time was leading DARPA. She comes from Caltech, and she's a really brilliant, well-spoken woman. And I thought, well, how come more people don't know about her? And then how do we make sure that there are more women like her leading agencies and doing such a fantastic job at it? So that's why we created Womenium, saying, well, let's expose, train, and inspire people to work at the cutting edge of technologies. And if they know the technologies that are going to be there tomorrow, then automatically they have an advantage and can be the leaders of tomorrow as well. One of the big components of Womenium is taking people on tours. Can you yes. describe what it's like to bring some of these young leaders onto a tour and expose them to the inner workings of some of these innovations happening at ARPA, DARPA, NASA, and different agencies? Right, absolutely. So tours are certainly one component where we like to work with organizations doing really amazing work. One example is the U.S. US Naval Observatory, which is located right here in Washington, D.C., where we were able to take a group of women to see the atomic clock and how time is kept in the country. And it was really, really exciting. Now, we've done other such tours with, again, NASA's flagship program, which is a James Webb Space Telescope, which NASA has been working on for the past 20 years. It goes 1.6 million kilometers into space. But, you know, the tours are a really small component of our programming. Before that is training. So training these women into what they're about to see, right? And training them into the programs that, again, they're, they're going to see and, and going to engage with. So uh, an example I'll give you is with ARPA-E. In 2018, we organized a trip of about 40 young students coming from Carnegie Mellon, Cornell, Harvard, MIT, 
Duke University, etc., and prepared them to understand and go to the ARPA-E Summit. So the training part came first, where we trained them on all 36 programs of ARPA. Then we took them to the ARPA-E Summit. And let me tell you, the ARPA-E Summit, again, ARPA, for those who are not aware, is the Advanced Research Projects Agency. They're like the DARPA of the Department of Energy, and they fund cutting-edge energy technologies. So everything from fission energy to uh, to solar, wind, of course, but also how do you optimize data centers and make sure there's energy savings there? Or how do you make sure agriculture, which we talked about earlier, is energy efficient? Can you even tap into the roots of plants to conserve energy? So they ask really good scientific and engineering questions, and that's what we wanted to train the women on. So first, we trained them on all the 36, 38 ARPA-E programs, weeks and weeks of training. Uh, then we took them to the ARPA-E summit, which is a very exclusive summit. Even friends from Department of Energy complained that they can't manage to get into the summit. And then we had a career session. So I, in fact, invited some of my friends who are program directors at ARPA-E to engage with our cohort. And our cohort really impressed them. They even asked them questions that the PDs themselves were not able to answer. But the point of that career session was really to understand the journey that some of these people who are leading these programs at ARPA had taken and to learn and, and glean from them the best path ahead for these young women. And some of the program directors and uh, the companies that were there at ARPA, you know, the ARPA grantees were so impressed with our cohort that many of our cohort were invited to work on internships and externships for these companies as well. So we had one of our students from the University of Maryland join the Palo Alto Research Center and work on a DARPA, ARPA-funded project on an energy coolant material that is able to keep the indoors cool without needing you know, expensive air conditions, etc. That was our experience with the ARPA program. And since then, you know, whichever organization and agency we work with in the defense side, in the intelligence side, we always want to make sure that our students are trained and then they're as good or better than the best in the field. And so certainly... Has it been done before? No. Can it be done? Yes. What would you say is the secret to the success? <laughs> that's that's a good question. I don't think there's any secret. Um, we love working with people, so we love to be open-minded. We love working on cutting-edge things. You know, you have to take a topic, no matter how boring it is, and make it exciting. Otherwise, no one's going to be interested. Certainly, you know, bringing out the fascinating parts of this project uh, of any topic. I think it's really important. And I think truly no secret, we have a fantastic team of of people within within Vermilion, and we like to make good things happen. So that's our secret. You create a lot of different programs that come out of this, the trainings, the jobs fair, career fairs. When you start a new program, what questions do you ask yourself to ensure success of that program? Well, our, our focus is always how do you make sure you have the impact How can I make sure that this program that I initiate and start, how does it meet the goals and the mission of Womenium? I'll give you another example. So we had a program with uh, the National Institute of Health where one of the departments of the NIH focuses on fMRI technologies, so imaging technologies, and their focus is on building the next level of fMRI technologies. And it's a small group. They had less than 17 people, one woman, and she's the one who approached our foundation and said, let's make a program together because my lab is looking to hire. There are 17 of us. There's only one of me. And it's very hard, A, to find skills of the work we are doing in our lab. And B, I want more women in my team. So how do I do that? So we said, all right, let's make a program. And we worked with her very diligently to come up with a training module to train students on what they're doing at the lab and really work at this intersection of computation and neuroscience. The way we shaped it is we made it an online program so that anyone in the world would be able to access it at any bandwidth speed at any time of the day, but still have a classroom effect where they're able to coordinate and communicate with each other. And some of the successes of this program first is, well, you know, we thought we'll have maybe 30 people to sign up. Actually, we got 720 students from 42 countries participated in this program. So we had PhD and postdoctoral students from, you know, Karolinska Institute in Sweden, so many from China, from India, and of course in the U.S. from Harvard, MIT, from UC San Diego, which has a big uh, neuroscience program. So again, we had 720 students, which we were not expecting at all. So that was the first success. And, you know, thankfully, we had built the platform in a way that allowed us to scale at that level. I think the second success we had is that we were able to create a dynamic classroom effect. What I mean by that is if at any time 
you had a question on this program. You know, while you're going through this intensive training, which was a six-week training program, if at any time you had a question, you could simply ask in this community forum platform we had developed, simply ask that question. And the average time for response was eight minutes. Now, imagine that, Jimmy. Today, even at your university, uh, you're not able to find your teacher or go to your TA or find your classmate and get a question answered within eight minutes. So we thought, wow, this is really powerful, you know, to be able to create this co-learning experience very quickly and in such a successful way. And I think the third success of this program was uh, now we're able to replicate it, right? So we created the tools from scratch uh, within our team, but now we've had other organizations come to us and say, well, we were not prepared for COVID and everything moving to online education. Can we learn from the successes you had at Viminium, especially for this NIH program and replicate it for our programs? So those are the three things which we are very proud to achieve. And we did win an award last year by the, by the American Federation for Aging Research for our work with NIH as well. So we are very happy and, and proud of our work. It certainly has resulted in over 170 scholarships going to these universities yes. and young women yes. working in the science and technology yes. field. So congratulations on that. No, thank you. Yes, we had the, the six-week online training, but then the scholarships were for students to actually come to Washington, D.C. to be at the NIH for a few days and weeks, and also to attend the largest neuroscience conference in the world, which is called the Society for Neuroscience. So the scholarships were meant for the students to be part of this, the live experience part of our training. When you look at the entire life cycle of getting and keeping women interested, female leaders interested in the cutting edge of technologies, you mentioned there's lots of organizations doing work when they're young kids, there's development groups for career paths. Where do you see interventions still missing and lacking that women are still falling out of the technical workforce? Those are really largest side of questions. I will say three simple things. First is a solid education at a young level. I think that's really missing other than for a few really good scientific schools in the country. I think broad level scientific education is not as robust as it could be. That's number one. Number two, I think, is sufficient and affordable childcare. I think for a lot of women who are starting off in organizations at the same level as men, at the same uh, numbers as men, and at the same pay scale as, as men, are still not rising to the top. And I think typically the preference for part-time work, you know, the lack of affordable childcare, are things that many studies will tell you are true. Third thing is lack of role models. We have so much focus on women in fitness and fashion, uh, in films. And, you know, the female leaders of our times are really lost in all of that. So more focus on, on these leaders, as well as creating more of them, I think is, is needed. To turn that back at you, how do you model what you see and how do you <laughs> model for the future leaders? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I, I love science. I want more people to get, get involved in science. And that's why I started the Womenium Foundation. Um, the Womenium name you know, is, is focused towards women, but we are truly, we are not uh, discriminating against men. We have men and women in our programs. Just more of our scholarships are geared towards women because we want to make sure that we're able to bring in more people who are underrepresented into our, our scientific community. So that's the goal of Womenium, and we keep working at it every day. This question comes from Ben Cott, one of our other panelists for this podcast series. And he asks, as a tech dad, how do I encourage STEM at home for my young daughter? Yeah, that's really fantastic. Great question. A uh, few things. First is maintain that curiosity in science and just general curiosity of asking questions. And on the flip side, I will say don't focus so much on programming. Of course, programming skills are very important. Don't get me wrong. But computer science is not science. I think the curiosity with the physical world, you know, physics itself is really amazing. And starting from there, I think, and, uh, you know, I studied mathematics, so I'm obviously biased, but from there, building skills in maths, which is a logical way of thinking, I think those two are really important skills. And those are going to be the skills of the future as well. So building those two, I think, are most important. And then everything else flows from there. I was on another panel looking at the, the future of jobs a few months ago. And I was asked the same question, you know, what are the skills needed for tomorrow? And that's what I answered. Physics and maths and everything else, you know, whatever you need to learn will come from there. But start with the fundamentals. 
And I think the second thing is, you know, tech dad, like that's an awesome, you're already an awesome role model. So share the, the work you do and uh, make it as fun as possible. And I'm sure your child will raise up to be a young engineer and scientist like you. I'm sure he'll appreciate that answer for sure once this episode goes up. Where do you turn to for new information? <laughs> uh, it's such a challenge, me because actually there are so many sources of new information today. So I'll break it down into three things, right? You obviously want to be well-informed. But for me, I like to be well-informed, A, in like general world news. You should know what's happening around. But I try to shy away from daily news. I think it can be really distracting. So I like to read something like the Financial Times or The Economist, which gives me a snapshot of what happened around the world, gives me really great insights, gives me some depth of the topic. You know, they are really well-written articles where I can understand the history, the backdrop, all of that. So that's what I turn to. I, I try to stay away from daily news. Second is transportation, which is the industry I'm in. I think there are wonderful blogs, so many different platforms. My favorite one are actually newsletters that I get from friends which has a nice synthesis of all the innovation, the funding, new innovation that's coming into the market. So I like to, again, get it from these smaller niche newsletters of industry leaders and where they're seeing movement, especially in terms of financing and innovation in my industry. So that's number two. I think number three, like we should know what's innovative around the world. And sometimes I do turn to YouTube channels sometimes. There's MKBHD who covers all kinds of cool tech gadgets. Yeah, in terms of just general innovation, there are so many different sources. So I don't think that's, that's hard to find. As you reflect back on your career, what brings you optimism about climate action? Uh, that's a great question. Well, I think we no longer have to wait and think of climate change as something far away. The forest fires in California, where you are, Jimmy, has made it much more real for us. And I think if you just look at this year, we've seen record high temperatures in Siberia, in Death Valley, in in California, and so many other places around the world. So climate change is real. Natural disasters are very real. Hopefully, I'm optimistic that this will move the needle for us to taking, again, some of those big picture items and problems we need to solve. Uh, The other thing that makes me optimistic is, if you know this adage that comes from the last federal administration, Jimmy, it said, you know, Obama sold more guns than ever. And it's because some gun owners feared that Obama was going to take their guns away. Today, we have a business world under this federal administration that fears that the federal administration is all going to act on climate. And that's why they are gearing up to take on climate change by themselves. So even if you look at companies like AES, right, they're not waiting for a federal mandate to to start investing in renewable, which they've already been investing. But, you know, more and more of the portfolio is already geared towards renewable. If you look at, again, the automotive industry, there's so much focus on on electric vehicles, and that trend is only going to continue. In fact, by 2025, we are supposed to have about 200 new models for EVs. So as long as we see more and more innovation in these sectors and more and more investment, Coming from the private sector, coming from corporations, I think we can be hopeful. Of all of the organizations that you have worked with and collaborated with, what are the unexpected collaborations that you found yourself in? I think everything that's that's happened happens very spontaneously and organically, but it's all about keeping an open mind. I remember very early on when I was with this team from MIT, I was positioned between Boston and Washington, D.C., because we were working with a number of organizations in both cities. And being in Washington, D.C., I was having lunch with a friend from OPIC, which is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, you know, sharing more about what's happening in our lab. And over this lunch, this friend says, well, you know, currently we have one of the heads from CHUM Hill, which is a large engineering procurement firm. So he said, you know what, we have one of these heads from CHUM Hill up in my office right now. He's giving us a talk. You should meet this person because they would be the perfect clients for what you're doing at MIT, you know, making inte- making cities intelligent, making systems intelligent. That's exactly what this engineering company would be most interested in. So you should meet him. So in fact, after the lunch, we wrapped it up early and we went to the office and we met this person. It was really interesting. And this person said, you know, it's really great what you're doing, but I don't have much time to chat. I'm taking a flight in about three hours. I have another meeting and I have no time to meet you. And I thought, okay, you're flying away. I don't know when you'll be in D.C. 
we need to do something now, uh, not wait for phone calls and phone calls and more meetings and then be lost completely. So, well, how can we meet? So instead I said, well, why don't I drop you to the airport? That way we'll have time to speak. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and yeah, you, you'll, you'll be at the airport. You won't miss your flight. So yeah, next hour I find a zip car. I find a, a BMW. So it's a nice zip car. Uh, rent it out immediately and drive this person to the airport all the while while telling them about the technology that we are building in the lab. So yeah, some, some things like this, you just have to jump on opportunities, you know, when they present before you. Yeah, taking advantage of the opportunity once it's in front of you. And I think most importantly, recognizing which ones to jump at. Uh, Because certainly you can jump in so many different directions every single day. Yes, yes. But Jimmy, let me ask you the question, right? Um, If I ask you, who are your 10 closest friends? And then if I ask you, how did you meet them? And you will say, well, actually, I know this person and that person. And then I introduced them. And very randomly, I met this person at this party or this like outdoor gathering or just standing behind me in a coffee shop, right? You, you don't know. And you can never plan for these things because truly the best things in life come when you're least prepared for it, when you're least anticipating it. I have a dating analogy too, you know, if, if you're always out looking to, to marry the perfect person, uh, you're never going to find this person. I think you have to <laughs> be open to meeting new people and who knows who you'll click with. So say yes more often than no because you don't know where it will lead. We can have that be the lesson of this podcast. Say yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> when you mentor early professionals, what challenge do you see them facing regularly and what do you advise them to do? I mentor a lot of young startups and I've mentored individuals in my team as well, the people I've recruited. You know, startups and startup thinkers have their own problems. But let me tell you a unique problem, which I think is a big problem we are seeing in society today, which is uh, not aiming high enough. So I had this one person I recruited in my team for a startup called Ride Amigos and was very smart, very bright, but he came from a disadvantaged background. And I don't think he ever dreamt high enough because I could see his capabilities. But when he would take on tasks or commit to something, it would be some of the, the easy things, not the challenging things that he was actually capable of. And uh, let me compare that to right being at MIT and seeing MIT Harvard students who are really confident, maybe even too confident, right, uh, that, that don't match up to their actual skills. So that tells you that there are two countries, there are two societies in, in America today. And the one advice I would give always is then like aim higher, you know, aim more than what you can dream for, because only then you will apply for those jobs which you don't think are meant for you. Only then will you, you know, fight for that pay which you, you deserve or which you think you should get. Because if you always undervalue yourself, always undersell yourself, I think we're going to see more and more of these disparities play out in society. So that's my, my feedback to young people starting out in careers. Always aim higher and always fight for what you think you can do. And always try to say, going back to saying yes, always say yes to taking on more roles. Because truly, I think we're all capable for much more than we think we are. Well, Prachi, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure having a conversation with you this morning. Yes, it's been a pleasure to speak to you as well, Jimmy. Thank you very much for having me. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Music